Hi everyone, welcome back to episode four of the SoCode podcast. It's where uh, we've collided the world of products and podcasts uh, in my uh, attempts to be humorous and call it the podcast. Um, <laughs> to, um, today's um, today's show, I guess, I've got uh, Chris Massey and Roger Hart joining us today. Uh, this is a particularly special one for me. Chris and I have known each other for a while now. Uh, we've been bouncing this, you know, the idea of um, setting something like this up for a while. So it's, you know, gr great to... Um, <clears throat> Great to see this come together. Um, another reason why this is quite special, this is a bit of a fitting metaphor for my day-to-day -day job of bringing product people together. So uh, it's nice to have uh, uh, the, the pair of you on today. So um, before we get into what we're uh, going to be talking about today, I just wanted to introduce my guests. Um, so we've got Chris Massey. Uh, Chris is a senior product manager at Go City, um, where he's bringing clarity and uh, systems thinking to a complex product ecosystem. Uh, prior to this, Chris has um, uh, he helped build the global um, what's it called? Sorry, yeah, the, the global mind the product community, um, helping product managers across the world um, level up their craft. Um, so, Chris, you're no stranger to um, public speaking, I take it. No, I've done. I mean, I don't do the. I haven't done it very often on video, but I I, I do uh, enjoy um, getting up in front of people and kind of sharing stories and kind of the, like telling the stories is a good way to force myself to think through the lessons that I learned along the way actually and it's a really good conversation to have there and to hear other people then come back to me and say share their stories about similar things and it's a great way to learn I've always found so just get out and kind of put yourself out there if you can. That's it yeah I've seen um, you know some of Chris's material is available through his LinkedIn uh, I'll be including all the links to uh, both Roger and Chris's profile so um, uh, please feel free to reach out uh, to anyone who has any further questions prior to this uh, podcast. Um, and um, and also we have Roger Roger Hart. So um, uh, Roger's a senior product manager at Microsoft, um, trying to help make the Internet of Things more more secure right now. Um, so he's focused on product strategy and making sure development teams understand customer needs. Um, I don't know how much you can share with us today, Roger, but um, <laughs> <laughs> would you like to add to that around what you're working on? Yeah, sure. No, um, I, I can talk a little bit about it. Being a bit coy because I'm mostly working on the next version of the product, which which isn't isn't released yet. But yeah, we um, we make something called Azure Sphere, which is a set a sort of chip to cloud full stack offering to help you secure IoT products and services. So um, you've got a sort of customized, secure operating system, a bunch of cloud services that handle update, and just all of the juicy security goodness that um, that helps, yeah, helps keep your devices healthy and functional and stop someone putting your toaster on a botnet. <laughs> well, you'd be pleased to know there isn't a Q&A session at the end of this, so there won't be any inquisitive questions coming your way about, <laughs> right, what's happening next? <laughs> but I might ask you after the call, actually, so we'll see. I'm not promising anything. <laughs> I normally think I'm joking when I said that, and then I read an article the other day. Someone is doing an IoT toaster. I just, <laughs> there, if there's a thing, someone will put internet in it. <laughs> I, I came across um, well, when I first got into product recruitment. One of the first articles or first podcasts I watched um, included an IoT salt shaker. I don't know if either of you have. Uh, yeah. Um, I will include the link to that just because it's it was really funny or even a five minute clip of that particular talk. This is like That's the juicer amazing. all over again, isn't yep. it? Like Wi-Fi enabled <laughs> juicer, like 
you buy bespoke salt sachets to go into your your IoT <laughs> salt shaker or, or canisters of salt. That's what it will be. Yeah. I, I love this about working in this space, though, right? Because consumer IoT is is like just pinging off the walls. It's full of solutions looking for problems. And as product people, you look at it and you think, I don't know, but maybe. But then like enterprise IoT, it's not. I mean, we still call it IoT, but it's instrumentation and actuation and efficiency and kind of making things a bit greener. And it's just it, it's automation. It's it's just all of that standard stuff that happens to have had maybe some of the processing pushed towards the edge or the telemetry added or a bit more cloud connection. It's I, it's, it's the, the wonderful other side of a slightly deranged coin. <laughs> Before, before we jump into today's topic, um, I just wanted to ask you both, actually, uh, one of the topics that I've been speaking to everyone about and I always find quite fascinating is your journey into product. How did you become a product manager? So I don't know who wants to go first, but... I, Roger like... should go first because he made the jump first, so... <laughs> I mean, did I? I, didn't I, we, I, we both... I? I watched it happen. I watched it happen and I was there for the therapy afterwards. Yeah, I mean, we sort of both ended up Chris and I work together at um, a company called Redgate, um, which makes, among other things, database software. And we worked on one of the other things. We worked on some tools for .NET developers. And at the time, we were both working in um, product marketing. Um, I'd come into product marketing from technical communications from and from that, from actually working in a bookshop for a couple of years. Did a, my, 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 my degrees in English literature, um, but I've always been a massive nerd. So I ended up being a technical writer for a few years and bootstrapped my way into marketing through content strategy and various things. And so I was I was working as a product marketer on um, .NET Reflector at uh, Regate, and we were quite an autonomous business unit, and we had quite a few problems. One of them was not really understanding our value to our customers. We didn't have a clear handle on, and I say customers is a slightly dicey one for people that know the history of that product, um, but. Um, there was just so much discovery work to do and so much customer understanding, which then bled into product direction. So very much a sort of on the job learning of what it took to lead a product. Like the, the remit was marketing, but the work we ended up doing, I would say both of us actually, Chris, was, was product management. Both of us were feeding in from different directions. So like between us, we more or less made a functional product manager. Um, but yeah, I think you were coming at it from the very much the kind of the marketing strategy perspective, and I was coming in from the community relationship perspective. And uh, indeed, after that, I went straight into developer relations, uh, still within Redgate. And then that kind of exposed me to an awful lot of more product organizations. Um, and from there, the kind of the the kind of journey was uh, I met some folks again I did a talk at a conference I did a lightning talk and there I met one of the co-founders of mine the product who said you think like a product manager do you want to come to this conference sure eventually they they actually hired me eventually a year after that to kind of bring the marketing and community work that I'd done for Redgate with the product thinking into mind the product and there like there were four of us to start with and so we I kind of trans transitioned into product within that. And for me, that was semi-intentional uh, because I forget if I want to learn this craft, the best way is to put myself smack bang in the middle of that network and absorb from as much around me as possible, see all these different perspectives. So going into that, in that community that was explicitly trying to level up product managers, it's like they can level up me with it. Um, and so that was a very intentional journey on my part. Um, 
and yeah, that was that was it. Basically, I broke in through that and built a phenomenal network of people who are sort of passionate about the craft and about teaching others and about learning. And again, that's just a great environment to be in. And it's a huge privilege for me. I recognize that absolutely. But it genuinely started from saying, sure, why not? And doing a lightning talk. That's literally where it started. So indeed, if anyone else is watching this and a bit nervous about it, like the lo-fi lightning talk will yield some startling results. <laughs> And yeah. I, do I do I remember rightly, Chris, that you um your yeah, your your like sort of pre tech sector background was was also humanities, right? Like you you're not a, you weren't an engineer. No, no, I'm a, no, no, actually not. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a, I was a philosopher at university and a massive nerd. I used to build websites for artists. I basically you know read the uh, learn HTML in 24 hours books. Yeah. So I think we all remember those and uh, like Dreamweaver and fireworks. That was my yeah. my first toys uh, in there. And I used to yeah build build some websites with tables i'm so sorry um, it was the 90s we all did it it, it was we all tried like it. those we all experimented with tables exactly we've all like it's it like those horribly cut jeans that the young people are wearing again now so yes um yeah indeed i was a uh, humanities massive nerd uh worked in a restaurant for a while in the kitchen went to uni came back uh sure redgate looks like a great place to work the culture of redgate brought me in and suddenly yeah. i'm in technology yeah. Yeah. Go. Okay. Great, great bit of advice there. And uh, it just goes to show, I mean, I, I speak to product managers daily, uh, day in, day out. Um, and everyone comes from a very different background. You know, you've got the engineers that have moved into it. You've got marketing, various other elements. So it's, it's one of those roles um, that I think no matter what walk of life you come from, you can bring value to. Um, and I think companies more and more so recognize that in terms of where can this individual bring value to our organization and what we're trying to do? I, I, um, I think the irony here is that, again, it's like, well, what problem are you solving as a product manager? Mm. I think like you don't have to be able to code. You don't have to be yep. able to design per se, right? It's about how you think. It's about how you synthesize information. For me, I look at my degree, I think, well, philosophy actually led me this way really well, because as a philosopher, what I would do when I was studying was take a complex idea, break it apart to figure out how it worked and then put it back together again and go and debate it like that's just product management in a different context yeah. i'm imagining that literary analysis is not dissimilar it's so like every back like when you look at it it's it's about a way of thinking more than anything and i think different backgrounds bring really valuable texture and nuance to that so i think it's it's problematic because when you with breaking into anything, so much of that is about you've got to have some experience before people take you seriously about getting into it. And that's a really problematic journey to make mm. because you can't just like do a course. Well, you can do a course and there's great courses out there and they teach you the fundamentals that you can then use. But in the one sense, it's tricky to do. On the other hand, it's open to everyone, which is, I think, a really interesting thing if they think in the right way. So many of the best product managers I've worked with have bootstrapped into the role. Like the yeah. the team I the team I ran at my my last organization, Savanta, had a had a great time there. Um, one of the product managers there, it, the company did technology for market research and also did market research, and so you know it's related, right? Market research is is deeply related to product management. But yeah, one of the the team there had bootstrapped um, his way in as like sort of graduate researcher and got more interested in the technology and brought sort of brought all of that to bear and just yeah had exactly the right way of thinking was already sort of thinking like a product manager and we sort of yeah we we sort of stole him for our team basically <laughs> doing great yeah i think i know exactly who you're talking about and yeah that's uh, funnily enough um 
we were just discussing your your, your uh, previous uh, organization and that's what kind of really sparked this um this question um for, from my end around the different backgrounds people could come from uh into that so um no thank you both for, for for sharing that so um let's jump into today's topic i guess finally we get there <laughs> um <clears throat> so the idea um chris and roger brought together was around the importance of world building and storytelling in products um so i'm gonna hand over the two of you to kind of go through what <clears throat> what you found throughout your careers on this um what what your tips maybe any any suggestions you can provide or what works for you so open up as a bit of a discussion really but i guess firstly just as a top layer before you go into it i mean what is world building and what's storytelling what's you know what, what's the difference so probably easier to start with storytelling i think like people understand the idea of storytelling and there's definitely a kind of trope that goes around about you know the importance of being a good storytelling with data being a good storyteller is essential to being a product leader or being a product manager and you know i broadly agree with that and stories are this kind of idea there are you know literal structures for stories and again roger you, you could probably actually speak to that way better than i can but we've got this idea of you know the hero's journey we've got this idea of there being actors and outcomes and like telling a story stories have meaning stories connect with people in a way that abstract data or facts don't and i think you, when you're trying to build alignment as a product manager, like it's really important you can tell that story to for people to get emotionally invested and kind of conceptually invested in what you're doing. And that's great. I think the thing for me, the distinction comes down to storytelling, you're focused on a single narrative, like just that one thread through the world. And the world building part, which is easy to forget about, but I think is increasingly becoming important as you know the world becomes more connected and we get our internet toasters, is that the world building is the narrative that happens around your story. And that's really important because your story has an impact beyond the end, like, you know, and they live happily ever after, like the end. Well, no, because those people, stuff kept going on. And for me, where it comes down to this idea of where world building becomes important is that you make a product, you create something, you drop it into the world. And there's a story around that about what it does. And the thing is, because of the way the world is like that has ripple effects that that move out from the thing that you built and good world building is the process of starting to understand well what happens if this exists what happens if this happens what are the second order consequences of that um and how does that propagate yeah. out and if you can't see that you're only getting half the picture of what your product might be and you're potentially missing out on strategic advantages that you might have or knock on consequences that you might have. And I think that for me, when it comes to yeah. world building and storytelling is like that, the single narrative and everything that wraps around that narrative. And that's kind of why I think it matters in product. Um, the, I got to this topic because I got annoyed at some fiction where the world building was problematic. And I kind of, that's what led me to like, why am I so angry about this? Oh, because I think in a different way. But that for me is the distinction. And I, Roger, like we've gone back and forth about this, but like yeah. what, you got some interesting nuance on that as well. Some interesting take. Yeah, I, I think you're quite focused on sort of second order and downstream, which mercenarily I think is fascinating because it kind of takes you to a V2, right? Product makes something else true in the world and then it changes the world and then it evolves the market needs. And thinking about and anticipating that is a way of 
potentially getting an advantage, but also avoiding sort of innovators, dilemmary sort of like thinking about what next, thinking about what comes after, thinking about how you change the world. It's fun as well, right? But upstream world building is also a part of storytelling. It's it's what makes things feel real. And something that I've really learned over the last couple of years, because I, my go-to, like if you ask me to kind of articulate something will be to talk or to write you a couple of paragraphs. And often that totally fails to land right so i've had to sort of you know <laughs> often our principles are something we do not who we are and i've had to teach myself to behave differently i had the opportunity to work with lots of really good designers uh, like user experience designers and one thing i found is that when you build a bit more world around your kind of narrative story when you have like some high fidelity mock-ups of and we could call them north stars but actually you can get a bit more detailed than that when you when you when you have something that's just a bit more rarefied it's much more compelling as a way of telling a story and it makes people start to ask their own second order questions. So can I click that? What happens if I do that? Well, okay, that's great, but can it do, you know, you kind of, you start to explore the yes and stuff a little bit more if your world is a bit more built. So I, I think it's good for intellectual hygiene, intellectual discipline. I also think it's good for making your storytelling more powerful. Yeah, and I, I can also just flag that as the two arts kids, the humanities kids on the call, like I understood what you what you said, what you meant when you said reified to make real. Just to flag yeah. that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. Um, from the Latin raise things literally to make to make a thing out of. Um, but I think user personas are a great example of that, right? Like to build a meaningful persona, like you don't just kind of say like this is you know you you are thinking about how does this person exist outside of our product so that we can build something that is meaningful to them um i think there's another part of this which as well which is that good world building is more believable and for me mm. when you start telling when you start have a fleshed out world around your product and you start coming up with hypotheses about what might be true for it or how might we and you start doing that kind of work if you understand the world and you can paint the picture of that, one, you understand it better, so your hypotheses are more higher fidelity or more likely to be have more confidence in those. But also with the world building, if you've projected that out to the rest of your team, you can sell that hypothesis better. You can get more in conversation around that. And some of that is about being more convincing, but some of it's also about having more reasonable debate. So, you know, if someone disagrees with hypothesis, and we both share the same world building picture. OK, like we can have a meaningful discussion about that. And I think that comes to like one of my favorite stories about this, which I'm going to ask you to tell now, <laughs> which is about world building as prototyping, which I think is a magnificent example of that upstream thing that you're yeah. talking about. I mean, you want me to talk about SQL source control, I guess. I absolutely want to talk about SQL Okay, control. cool. So a little bit of background. SQL source control is like a flagship product for Redgate software. Genuinely great. I'm assuming they still make it. I haven't checked in a while. I'd be amazed if they still don't because it was like the linchpin of this whole amazing thing that they did. Um, it's a tool that lets you source control your database scripts, your database changes. A problem that is historically was really hard for a variety of sort of fairly existential reasons to do with SQL being declarative and table migrations being hard. Anyway, um, we had a, a wonderful, a brilliant product manager I work with who had this vision basically that we should make a source control product. And he kind of struggled to get traction on that idea in the organization for a while. Um, and it was sort of, it, it was something that because the problems were so endemic, the, the customers didn't really know they needed. It wasn't something they were beating down the door for. But when you started to articulate it, they were like, oh, oh, that would be brilliant. And it was technologically hard. So 
there was a kind of two-phase world-building effort involved in in how this got to market, one of which I was directly involved in myself, one of which I sort of got to see from the sidelines, both of which were fascinating. So we did a sort of, he and I, I was a technical writer at the time, uh, moving into marketing, we prototyped this product. And when I say prototype this product, what I mean is we wrote a white paper about how you could just about fudge it using some like open source bits and the command lines of a couple of our existing products. And so we told a story, we sort of laid out the case, we did all of the fluff and the sort of selling the idea, selling the problem, and then so basically just published the batch scripts. Like here is here is how, what you would do and the automation jobs you would run to chain together these operations that will let you just about do this thing. And we put that out there, we did some marketing of it, we got a load of feedback on it, and it started to generate a lot of interest. It sort of validated the concept, but we also saw people actually using it. And a couple of years later, when we take the product to market, one of the things we were competing with in a sort of like, um, uh, in, in that sort of Clayton Christensen way, uh, one of the things it turned out we were competing with was the right the white paper we'd written two years ago. Um, that was that was fun. But the um, so we we told a story which was you can source control your databases using this stuff, but then we we kind of built it out a bit more to make it real, to make it plausible for people. And then, but sort of to do that, and this was the masterstroke I think of the guy that that was that was that was working on it. Um, in order to make that work, there needed to be a piece of functionality that was added to the product, like the 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 thing that it would need to be able to write out the date the differential change script to a bunch of folders of of, of scripts modeling your database objects, and. Um, that feature was sort of was an independently useful thing, a small one, but an independently useful thing that we managed to shoehorn into the product. And the sort of second order thinking genius there was once you'd created these dynamic scripts folders, you had the capability, the next obvious stage, the next thing you could then do was start to build this source control automation. So the sort of the, the, the two ends of the world building, the sort of the upstream and then the kind of downstream, well, okay, this is now true in the world. So what could be true next? That was the little conceptual hop that sort of helped take the market on the journey. And then the database source control thing helped sort of take the market on the journey to database lifecycle management and to more advanced database DevOps and to, you know, Redgate's exciting, uh, exciting revenue journey. And um, I, you know, I personally think that a lot of it has its genesis in a couple of really good ideas that this one very talented product manager I had the like luxury of working with had. Um, but yeah, it was it was partially a world building building exercise. We we wrote a fairly detailed white paper that kind of made this set of concepts real, and then we used that to iterate on what could become true in the world next. I think that's. I love that idea of world building as prototype. Like, can you take someone on a journey where they like they get excited, they start engaging with it. One of the best things I've ever heard along the similar lines is uh, Jan Abasto talks about your roadmap being a prototype for your product. Like if you can tell the narrative to, that, and that's mm. storytelling, right? Then you kind of like, you've gone from the world building as prototype to roadmap as prototype to wireframes. Like you've got these levels yeah. that you can go before you touch code at all. And I just, I love that. I, I mean, I yeah. worked there and I didn't know this story and that's my favorite thing about this. Um, I think- We're I doing that do, at the moment a bit. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because a lot of the, the product is a lot of the interaction with it is command line based. So right. you um, I've got one here, but I can't show you, but you, you, you get this like <laughs> circuit, you get this board, like you get an EV evaluation kit, a, a sort of early version of a chip that you kind of plug things into and you, 
put the version of the operating system on it and you play with it and a lot of your interactions so the actual product is like a bunch of hardware of which not very many exist at the moment and um some like command line utilities and it's it's not very visual it's not very immediate so in order to get feedback and in order to explain it to people in order to effectively use or test it at this high level of altitude we're at where we can't ship someone a dev board not not just for a, like a research call and we can't necessarily get them all set up and using the thing our sort of the story we're telling is yes we tell them what it does and there are some bullet points but we're actually using architecture diagrams basically like fairly simplified architecture diagrams and sort of slide based sort of user experiences maybe little snippets of what the command line interactions might be and having to kind of assemble those in such a way that people can give meaningful feedback and it's, it's really hard you know because the whole thing is quite abstract but um you've got to sort of do what you can to make it real yeah i think the, the 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 risk with something like this is that you could very easily be accused. We, certainly, I, I could imagine like, is this just is this semantic navel gazing, right? Are we just like saying world building where we just mean market research, right? And uh, maybe we are, but but I think there's a difference, right? I think the difference is about the interconnectedness of the, the bits of information we're finding, right? Because like, I can go and find some stats, I can do some competitor analysis, and I can give you information and I think the distinction is about tying that together into a coherent world where if you change something here it has a consequence here whether that's upstream or downstream yep. to your point yep. earlier like, and I think that's the distinction and I've not seen any frameworks about this or anything I think it's thus far it's you know it's it's very much a it's a better way of thinking it through I think I was wondering about like our experiences through this and like how storytelling in a startup might be different from storytelling in a business, in, a, in an enterprise. Having so, my last role was at a kind of very kind of large, sizable, not Microsoft size, but a sizable, you know, a little, a little six thousand person organization. And there's there is some <laughs> there's no room in there for storytelling that doesn't have data underneath it. Yeah. That was really interesting. Is that in this in a the smaller team where everyone is kind of impassioned and kind of believes the stories already, you can go a long way with just the narrative. And I think there's a really useful discipline actually. Mm that actually could be that is useful all the way down the chain about if you want to tell a good story about something uh, with a bigger business it really should be happening and you you have some data to back that up like you've gone and done the market research and you feed that into the realism of your of your world and again this comes back to what brought me to this is like you know it's very easy to watch a science fiction movie and get really annoyed that wouldn't happen in real life but you're like, yeah, but this sci-fi, no one cares. But when it comes to product, no, no, it has to be real life. You actually do have to have some believability so you can reify something. And I think that's really important to not lose sight of. Well, I think with your was, example, you have the batch scripts. Like yeah, it was tangible. Yeah, there's got to be a thing because that lets you draw the causal connections. That lets you do more than just sort of talk imaginary. Um, yeah. Like William Gibson, I think, I might be about to misattribute this quote, has this thing about science fiction being selectively extruding the present. Ah. And um and I, I sort of think that's a lot of what we do in product unless we're doing like pure innovation led push like we we iterate something out or we we sort of pull a string off the edge of our product and have and see what it might look like you know um that sounded gross so but but we and we cheese string model of product <laughs> innovation yeah let's go with that why not um 
And when you've already got a product, then it's a little easier to start telling that story because maybe your next innovation is one of those second order things. Someone's starting to be able to do X, so maybe they do a bit more X or they do Y with it, or we, or you do some application innovation where you say, hey, we've got this product over here, but you could also use it for, for this. But um, yeah, sometimes you are just having to, to sort of think through and ask, well, well then what if in, in a bit more of a vacuum? And yeah, you do need to be able to tell those stories. I think the there are as you're saying that I'm thinking like that actually there are some tools that help with this like anything around yeah systems thinking is a good example like mm. the whole point of if you it, depending on what level of abstraction you work along like you can start to see the different actors in a system and actually see how they interact service blueprints another good example yep, where yep, yep. they can tell a single narrative but you can actually explode them out to tell bigger stories value and chain think, modeling of any kind really exactly um i'm thinking about like when i was at mind the product and we were in this position where we didn't like we were building the product from the ground up like we were trying to build this in integrated community that involved content uh meetups con yeah, uh, uh, the conference elements like all of that stuff was trying to come together online training we were trying to tie that all together because all those things existed independently of each other but we had never brought them together into a single in platform before and we kind of had a vision for what that might look like and so yeah we told we spoke the vision there but actually again like these things all existed out in the world already so a huge part of what we we're trying to do was to listen to those little segments of story and try to understand are these part of the same story how do we tie them together into a coherent journey for a given customer who moves between these different narratives um, and that was a real challenge because we were coming from, we had nothing, we didn't have an, uh, we didn't, we were going from scratch and that was actually mm -hmm. kind of interesting. And like, how do we take these different stories and see, oh no, these are actually all part, how do we make them part of one story in a way that feels believable to the actual customer? Um, and that was like, it took us a while to get to that point, but once we had a narrative that, oh yeah, okay, and then I'll do this and then like, oh yeah, and people getting excited about that narrative, okay, now we're closing in on a coherent proposition for the product. And we didn't, like we, we were building stuff before then, but we were optimizing those, those individuals. Like we didn't start tying things together until we were confident that we had that excitement of how it would bind together. Have you seen that, um, you, you probably have, it's fairly iconic, the Disney product estate diagram. No. It's from, I want to say it's from the 60s, but I'm probably getting that wrong. I will look it up after this. But it, it's like a sort of almost hand-drawn, a draftsman-drawn, like value chain map of the Disney product estate, we might say now. I what, okay. don't know what they called it in 19, whenever it was. But um, so you've got the, the characters linking through to the publications, linking through to the parks, linking through to effectively a sort of an interrelated mapping of how the IP gets you to the product value. Um, and so they started thinking incredibly holistically about what sat downstream of Mickey Mouse, right? Like, you know, what what you put Mickey Mouse in the world, what follows from there? Um, <laughs> it's uh, sweet, sweet I, capitalism. Basically, I, sorry, I, I was about to go off on one about the Nolan Batman films, but maybe we'll maybe we'll get to that later. Um, That's the next episode. But yeah, it's 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 a really interesting way of kind of modeling what you've got, how it interlinks and what it then implies about what you can have next. Um, kind of visualizing your entire estate and drawing those connections. Visualizing is really important. I think whenever I go somewhere, what I find, I, I'm finding that in my role where it's, here at Go City is that there's a huge amount, this is scale up, we're about 170 people and we're kind of like really aggressively starting to grow. And 
um, there's so much. We saw this at Redgate, I think, to a different degree. But we had someone who, if I remember, we had someone whose job literally tried to tackle this, which was so much communication and information is tribal. And actually getting information out of people's heads into a format that everyone can see and understand is it's, it's a hard problem, yeah. right? It's, it's not solved. Well, there was literally someone at Redgate whose job it became to try and yeah. solve communications, which was a hell of a task. Personally, I'm a very visual thinker. One of the things I found incredibly powerful is starting to have a conversation with people and starting to like say, let's get some post-it notes or a mirror board or yep. whatever and say, okay, yep. let's start to map out this journey. Okay. And so how does this connect to their journey over there? And you start to draw those connections. And the visual mapping is really interesting because it's about having world building only works if everyone can understand the world yeah like if, if i come and talk to you know someone on the finance team who's like really into some really niche stuff i don't understand their world so i can't tell a story i can't understand their story and like good world building has to be at a level that everyone can understand the story and i think that's another key thing about the distinction between world building and storytelling is that world building has to cross yeah. you know has, has to be has to kind of cross uh, the whole organization in a way that storytelling doesn't necessarily have to to that same level. Mm. Um, the thing that actually, just thinking about what, as you were talking, something that occurred to me was this idea of if you look at some of the books and the, the novels that are like have huge world building, they all have a map at the front, right? <laughs> you've, got your, you've got your Middle Earth, you've got whatever, Westeros, like these huge complex worlds. They've all got a map because that gives you a sense that there's stuff happening in different places that doesn't relate to this bit of the story right now. But there's something happening over there right now that you just don't know about yet. And I know that's not a meaningful, that's a terrible metaphor, but it's this well, idea no, but I was when a story about... gets complicated yeah. enough, you need that. You can't just say, you know, see, spot, run. Like, that's a very simple story. It's one narrative. Like, I don't care what the other dogs are doing right now. I just want to see spot chasing that ball. Um, simplicity of story, when you scale that up, you need bigger tools to deal with it. Game of sure. Thrones would have been very different without that opening intro then. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. so. It's, um, did you this is like a tiny technique thing riffing on what you just said chris but like i don't know maybe this will be useful to other people maybe it maybe it won't but did you ever go to one of elizabeth's um data amnesties <laughs> yes i did for, for the record elizabeth was our uh our manager uh, a product she was leader a fantastic phenomenal fantastic product leader product um yeah. yeah she she's on elizabeth a look her up follow her she works blogs sometimes yeah, she's phenomenal. She's she's working in kind of US, the US equivalent of GDS at the moment, and she's an absolute powerhouse. She has she has this wonderful maxim, um, which is don't ask for permit permission or forgiveness, radiate intent. Um, like let people know what you're going to do with enough time to get in the in your way if they really need to, but then carry on with it. But yeah, she used to run these things. Which I think I think they were called data amnesties. It, it sort of acknowledged the siloing of, of knowledge, but also the need to bring people on the same page. So it was like turn up in a conference room and no judgment. I know you've been doing customer research. I, I know you <laughs> I know what you've got under the table. I know you you've got like a Gartner report or you've been doing those. You UX calls with those guys. Turn up, confess to your data, and then just a bunch of post-it notes on the wall to kind of understand what we've got and which SharePoint folder or Google Drive or wherever it was. And it, it was fun and it was a bit daft, but it also helped people understand kind of the knowledge and the connections and the things that we knew and the things that we didn't know. And especially in, in an organization that's growing fast where you might be having scaling challenges, I would say, I would say run a date, do a data amnesty. Yeah. 
just, just on that, actually, just to touch on a point, Chris, that you brought up earlier around, you know, startups and scale up and how, you know, it's going to be different uh, in that environment compared to an enterprise environment. I mean, question for both of you, you you've worked in a variety of different companies as product managers. <clears throat> What have you, what's the main difference that you guys have encountered regarding this in the organizations you've worked with? Is, is there any trends that you think you see more of it somewhere, less of it somewhere else? You know what? I'm going to be, I'm going to be controversial and say it's super cultural. So mm -hmm. like I've worked in startup scale up and like what by any definition you have to call a megacorp. And the, you know that glib thing about London being a lot of little villages and it sounds sickening the first time someone says it to you and then you realize it's actually true. Um, like I, I worked in a three-ish hundred person nonprofit that I won't name uh, and you know, 300 is, it was about the size of, of, of Redgate, which was a sort of scale up. Redgate was super nimble, had an amazing culture, was super flexible. This 300-ish person nonprofit behaved like the bogeyman version that you might imagine Microsoft to be. Like it had that incredibly dodgy enterprise culture with lots of obstructive process. And it was weird because the people were all fantastic and super smart. Like you want to see something be less than the sum of its parts, go and work at Redacted. Um, but anyway, <laughs> it, it's 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 super cultural like you can you can turn a, a a 300 person organization into something that feels like a lumbering beer moth the experience i'm having on the azure T, sphere team at, at microsoft is way more like a startup and we're not that small of an organization and we're embedded in quite a large one like it's it, it's super cultural it's super subjective i think Product maturity counts for a lot, mind. Like, a, I think a, a more mature product is maybe likely to have. Yeah, I think I believe that. I think I think I believe that product maturity is more of a factor than organization scale. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And when we say maturity, I'm going to talk about product, like product, product, product process maturity, not the like. A legacy product uh, is a very mature I, I meant product, product lifecycle, but yeah, well, it's interesting because yeah. like I've worked on something which was no, I, I guess I see that right because but I've seen both sides of that where you have a product that is, you know, it, it needs to stop, right? It, it is no longer doing what it needs to do and it needs to be brought in and sunset. And there's a lot of cruft that's built up around it and a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of people have vested interest like that. That's a nightmare to untangle. And that, that's one version of the maturity. Equally, I've seen products that are mature in the sense that the team is a, it's a mature product team. They know what they're doing. They're highly efficient. And actually in that environment, you get it can be a long lived product that still has good processes around it. So I think. Yeah, OK, yeah. So so I, I kind of agree with you. and But I, I think like if it's the the. It comes back to the culture, right? Like the culture, if the culture of the team is mature in the sense that we are mature adults building a product, then we have one experience. If we've just had a thing for a long time, but we're still not mature about it, you're going to have a different problem. I think the main difference, depending on the scale of organization, is the number of different stories you have to tell to build your world. But that, but that, that I think that's it. Because like, if you're in a startup, you only have a handful of people who you've got to convince. Like, you know who those are. You pro probably know again the idea of a world building has you to tell to do world building. You have to make it something that all the different people who are part of that world can understand. When it's a startup, you've got a handful of people. Fairly easy to wrap your head around 
broadly speaking. What has to go into that might vary depending on the culture of who the founders are. Do they need data? What do they need? But you have a, a more bounded problem there. As organizations scale, and again, a lot of this depends, it's not a hard and fast rule. The odds are you're going to have to tell more story, more slight variations of the story, translate it more often to get everyone to understand the the build the building that you're trying to do. And that's, I think, the distinction. It could be a high functioning product team and actually you've got people supporting you in there and they're coming to meet you halfway. Great. It could also be a lumbering monster where it's very old school enterprise on mainframes. And I hope you like Lotus Notes. You know what I mean? Like it's that that world where everyone is just doing their thing and you you don't everyone's kind of independent. Yeah, there's, there's like where everyone's just siloed and not exactly uh, antagonistic, but also not necessarily collaborative. Like that's not a function of the size of the organization. That's mm-hmm. a function of culture. Yeah, I think sure. the, the size of the organization does have a complexity element just because of the number of different stories you have to tell. Mm-hmm. I think there's um, there's design patterns. Maybe not design patterns. I I'm overly fond of the metaphor of carcinization, um, which is a form of um, convergent evolution, whereby basically everything oh, over yes. time turns into crap. 